Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block. Today we have another episode with the two, the power duo of crypto venture and everything else. Meltem Demures, Chief Strategy Officer at CoinShares, and Vanessa Grillet, Managing Partner at Aglae Ventures. But before we dive in, I want to take a moment to thank our sponsors. What's next for digital currency after a brutal 2022? While the core promise of crypto hasn't changed, digital currency is still forming the base layer for a new global commerce infrastructure. From merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers and even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. It's like building houses. What's the foundation and can you get the foundation right? Throughout Q1, I'm happy to host leaders from Circle here on The Scoop to give listeners the chance to hear how one of crypto's most prominent builders is paving the way for digital currency utility. Visit circle.com slash scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. It's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon 2. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure, decentralized access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's native interoperability protocols provide developers with a variety of high-integrity price and event data, including detailed transaction proofs from other chains and information from Web2 APIs. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblock.co slash terms dash service. Once again, we have Meltem and Vanessa on again. I think this is the third time we're trying to make this a, a monthly situation just can't get enough of the fun it's just too much fun every time we talk so obviously what's on everyone's mind right now as we were talking about before we turn on the mics is this situation with one gary gensler and one exchange kraken coinbase waded into the conversation saying they're gonna fight back push back really hard um but let's let's start there how I mean, does this reflect something that's existential? I had a message from a hedge fund manager who said the the um, U.S. government's going to kill kill this industry in the states. Is that where we end up? Does everyone move to Asia and and maybe London? London's getting pretty progressive, as as you know, Vanessa Paris as well wants a piece of the action. What what shakes out from all this? We'll start with with Vanessa, I guess. Hit me, hit me with so, your thoughts. So the arrangement that uh, Kraken um, agreed to isn't law at this stage. Um, so we should be careful into um, you know thinking that this is going to be the the future for all institutions. 
we're currently um, you know, facing a very aggressive regulator who wants to regulate by enforcement. And until the legislator steps in and you know, offers a legislative uh, framework that is reasonable and that is workable and that, yes, uh, you know, uh, has a specific regime for maybe exchanges or, you know, takes into account what staking is and what type of product it is, we're going to be in this phase where we have regulation by enforcement, um, whether it's clear or not, uh, and then every, you know, uh, player in the space uh, being super cautious with the U.S., and figuring out if they um, are better doing business elsewhere. Melton, why, why can't, why won't the SEC just present the industry, these exchanges and brokers, with just parameters around which they can offer the services they already offer? They seem so keen to basically, basically, I think what the situation is is they want to deem everything as having to fit into the traditional structure. So Kraken or Coinbase can't offer any products unless they, or a number of products, unless they're a registered national securities exchange or, you know, FINRA broker dealer or something of that nature. Um, to play devil's advocate, and to your point before we turn on the mics, a lot of the stuff Gensler talked about seems fairly reasonable. Like if I stake my coins with Kraken, I, I do want to know that, they're, you know, I'm getting the, you know, requisite amount of coins back through that staking program that they're not using it for any sort of other purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems reasonable. But why, why won't they fit that into some alternative uh, structure? Okay. So I think the way I think about it is the really important word here is nuance. Uh, crypto networks have a lot of different nuances in terms of what function staking plays in that network. I think also there's a fundamental sort of confusion about staking and yield. Um, And this is where the syntax and the language of crypto gets confusing because we use a lot of finance words that mean very different things. Mm. (laughs) And we use them in a a different way in crypto, but the connotation means, you know, something different entirely in the world of traditional securities, traditional finance. So the first issue is I think that there is a fundamental misunderstanding at all levels of government, regulator, policymaker, even institutions engaging in this activity as to what it is they're actually doing with these assets on these different networks. So to be very clear, right, staking, the act of staking is preventing network dilution because what you're earning is pro rata network inflation. So you are not lending, you are not uh, earning interest, you are effectively utilizing your assets to perform a function on the network that allows you to maintain your pro rata share of ownership of that network and to avoid dilution via these inflationary dynamics, number Mm -hmm. one. I think where it starts to get challenging is the nature of staking is also different on each network. So in some networks, staking is non-custodial and there's no risk to the underlying asset. In other networks, staking is custodial and there is a risk that that your assets have, uh, like the risk of getting slashed or, or you know, having some of your stake reduced because the validator isn't running the way it's supposed to. And so I think where it starts to get challenging, why I think rulemaking can sometimes be challenging is there's all of these really particular nuances. And then on top of that, we have another fundamental issue. We have literally had over the last six to nine months, 
the literal implosion of multiple U.S. consumer platforms, Celsius, Voyager, FTX, Gemini Earn. These platforms have imploded and taken billions of dollars of customer funds with them in the process. So I think from a regulator perspective, you look at this and you say, A, it's confusing. B, I don't get it. C, they're using language that's very similar to language we would use in the world of securities. So you know what? The easiest approach, I don't want to touch this. I don't want to deal with it. I honestly think if I were a financial regulator and I had to deal with crypto, crypto is a teeny tiny market, right? It's a $1 trillion market if we believe market cap numbers, which I personally don't, of which 15 to 20% at any given time is stable coins. In no other time in history have regulators had to spend so much time and energy and attention on such a teeny tiny asset class that has such a minimal impact on the health of the US financial system. So I also think there is sort of a sense of like crypto is a hot potato. It's being passed around from agency to agency. No one really wants to deal with it. It's fucking confusing. Mm. It's weird. The people are crazy. Bunch of fraud just happened. So the easiest thing from the perspective of the SEC and Gary Gensler's political animal, mm. right? People are not happy with him and his tenure at the SEC. So he's trying to win points. This is easy. This is a no brainer requires no engagement, requires no effort. I think the OCC is going to go down a similar route. We'll see what the CFTC does. I don't think it's necessarily coordinated attack on crypto. I think it's more, we just don't want to deal with this anymore. Figure it out, grow up. And then when we get to a point where this is relevant, then maybe we'll figure it out. But there's just no, there's just no juice here. Like the juice is not worth the squeeze if you're a political appointee. The juice is just not worth the, the squeeze. So it's problematic. Mm. So how is this impacting? I mean, you mentioned 2022's capital markets meltdown. Now it looks like 23 could be underpinned by a regulatory crackdown championed by anti-crypto stalwart Gary Gensler. Vanessa, how does this impact deal flow? How does this impact... Um, you know, sort of the venture landscape and companies trying to go out and raise? So I would say less than the global macro situation. Um, I think the impact of the global macro and the interest rates is more significant um, in the fundraising side and, and how we invest than, uh, than anything related to those specific use cases and sort of centralized entities that blew up. Um, you know, if you're still focused on protocols and innovation um, in, in the blockchain space, um, that is only like a small proportion of like what you would look at. And so I think, you know, with the macro situation getting a little bit better, uh, or at least uh, getting a little bit uh, less uh, intense, um, I think, you know, as the markets pick up this year, um, people will be more confident in raising and then launching tokens, et cetera. So we've seen the valuations come down, which was a healthy thing. Um, great projects continue to raise without any problems. Uh, other projects struggled a little bit more. Uh, but I think uh, overall, it's a great time to be raising and uh, investing in crypto. From an entrepreneurial perspective or from a VC perspective or, or both? I would say both. This nice little rally we've had since the beginning of the year has to provide some relief. Certainly made me feel a little less dire. 
So I think, uh, you know, before the end of the year, we had everything at the same time. We had the global macro situation. We didn't know where it was going to go. We had, you know, every everyone and their mother going bankrupt. So it was a lot of uh, emotion and, <laughs> and activity. Uh, and I think things have quieted down and uh, we see a lot of activities in, in all the, the protocols, you know, people are building and, and are continuing to be very excited about the innovation in the space. I keep hearing Asia is heating up. When you look at a lot of these runs in something like Aptos, that's being driven apparently out of Asia. And Asia's more excited than maybe the West to an extent. Are you seeing that, Maltham? Yeah, look, I, I think the clearest sign of market activity in Asia, one great data point to look at is when the bulk of trading activity happens. And right now it's predominantly during Asia open market hours. And then the other thing we look at is USDC versus USDT dominance. USDT mm. is obviously much more popular, it's much more common trade pair for uh, Asian crypto exchanges and Asian platforms. And so USDT volume um, has has soared over the last uh, few weeks while USDC volume on chain is sort of declining. So that's another interesting just east-west data point for people who want to track that and sort of look at different ways to empirically quantify some of these qualitative statements we're making. But yeah, um, look, I think the spe speculation is the name of the game. The casino is back. Um, you know, we had some challenges in Asia, lockdowns, market instability, um, but, you know, retail at the end of the day is always going to play. I think a lot of the activity right now is being driven by retail. We see that with volumes on exchanges. And then on the Bitcoin and Ethereum side, we've seen like a big uptick in open interest. So open interest doubled from December to January. Um, trading volumes have ticked up dramatically. Part of that is volatility. Like when there's volatility, there's inevitably going to be more capital in the market just because when there's volatility, you know, you get a lot more um, activity from traders when things are sort of flat or trading sideways, not a lot of catalysts from a narrative or from a fundamentals perspective, and things tend to be pretty quiet. But we have to remember a lot of this is driven by volatility itself. And so there's sort of this recursivity that starts to happen when we see an uptick in volatility, whether it's to the upside or to the downside. We see more trading volumes. We see more activity on trading platforms, DeFi platforms, which then manifests more volatility. So there's just kind of reflexive recursive activity that happens both on the downside and on the upside. Um, but I think the whole market, you know, is excited about a rally. I think there's a lot of capital that sort of got pulled out. A lot of people cash back into stables. Um, a lot of people maybe have dry powder. A lot of books got reset, you know, December 31st. So um, a lot of different dynamics at play. But we see that reflected also on the institutional side. If we look at fund flows, so we track fund flows into listed investment products. Uh, we've seen the largest amount of inflows in, in a year now in January with over $170 million predominantly going into Bitcoin. And um, we see net inflows every week since the start of the year. So those are all, I think, very good ways to sort of look at how sentiment is evolving and look at the actual data and validate that that it's driven by activity on chain. Um, sorry, and then one last point, I think in stuff like Aptos, because the liquidity is so low on a lot of venues, you don't actually need a lot of trading volume to account for massive spikes in price. So I think one of the other things that's happening here is, you know, a lot of these things that are seeing a lot of volatility, 
just are very thinly traded, don't have a lot of liquidity. So a small buy can move the market quite a bit and there's a high amount of slippage on these things. So I think that's another factor we can't underestimate is even though Aptos may have a quote unquote market cap of a couple billion of that, you know, maybe a hundred million is actually actively circulating in the market. So there's also some I think confusion when people look at these data points, they're not understanding that the actual supply doesn't actually match what's available in the market and what's on order books, right? So the depth of these markets is pretty shallow. Um, and again, we'll see if that evolves as some of these coins get unlocked um, or as traders return to the market. But right now, very thinly traded on a lot of this stuff. I heard that it was Vanessa behind this entire rally. She's just buying all day <laughs> hey. long. Ape it. Bless you, Vanessa. <laughs> ape together, ape strong. What happened to that? Live, like live, live by the ape, die by the ape. So I think the poster child, right, of, of this, you know, who knows? Maybe it's a, maybe it doesn't have legs, but of this seemingly like, seeming resurgence is the fact that Sue and Kyle were able to get that, that deal done. Um, and a lot of it I hear is um, Abu Dhabi, right? They're in Abu Dhabi? Not Abu Dhabi, Dubai. Dubai, Dubai, yeah. Uh, family offices and, you know, the sort of high net worth families out there. So, I mean, well, I mean, we can start with the basic question, Vanessa. I mean, that's got I mean, that's got to indicate something about, I don't know, human nature or something about the market. That's... I was surprised that they got it done so quickly. Maybe birds of a feather walk mm. together. Um, I think, you know, people maybe don't understand exactly what they did before and have relationships and trust that they can, um, they can come back and they convince them to do that. Um, I think the fact that we have a lot of founders that have, uh, have created a lot of sort of negative returns for a lot of their investors and are still raising and still public and still have an activity is quite uh, surprising, challenging, and and really not a good look for for the crypto space. Uh, but again, the regulators don't seem to be able to do anything against these individuals. Um, I understand that the liquidators of the bankruptcy. Um, can't get a hold of them. So, you know, they seem to be running free in whatever jurisdiction, uh, raising money and, and continuing their, um, not their scams, but their uh, activities. Let's put it this way. When do you think an investor or an entrepreneur deserves a second chance? I mean, everyone, everyone should get some sort of. Well, well, Frank. Comeback. For the answer to that, let's turn to our friend Adam Newman. Mm, he's had many chances. I mean, the market loves a comeback story. Uh, I think this is Sue and Kyle's third chance. <laughs> is it? Yeah, because they had the their honest. FX, they had their mm -hmm. 4X fund. Then they did three arrows. Now they're doing this. Look. The market, the market commands the price. And if people are willing to write checks, it's you know, 
this is this is part of crypto. We wanted it to be open and permissionless and all of these fabulous things. And here you have a great example of that. If there are people willing to write checks, I mean, there is no judge, there is no jury, there is no executioner. There's the court of public opinion, but that's had very little influence on, you know, the actual success of, of many people. Because um, just look around you, a lot of people continue to fail upwards. So mm, I think that's evident in the rise of one Frank Taparo. <laughs> Um, Vanessa, in terms of deal flow, what does it look like? Um, I think a lot of, uh, the investors turn to early stage, um, opportunities, um, mm. as a lot of the later stage deals have, you know, um, got very high valuations and are either doing down rounds or, um, or flat rounds. And I think there's a lot of excitement in the early stage, especially still on the infrastructure, ZK, um, all the, the layer twos, um, scalability. We'll talk a little bit later about AI, but there's been an uptick there. Um, and, you know, I just see a lot of people building and continuing to build on the other L1s, whether it's Solana or Cosmos. Um, so a lot of activity but mostly on the early stage. You mentioned AI. Are there any AI crypto projects you're excited about? Do you think this AI narrative is overhyped? So I'm not enough an expert to um, say that, you know, I've dug into the AI world, AI and blockchain world. I was looking at the trading and maybe Meltem has some, some uh, insight into that. Like there's about 70 companies that, you know, have tokens that are related to AI and they all, you know, were caught up in the hype of, um, of the chat GTP launch. So I think, you know, we have like the web to AI, um, area that's getting, you know, a lot of attention and then it just bleeded into, um, into blockchain. And also at the time when the market was really down, people were kind of looking for <laughs> other things and AI caught the attention of a lot of investors. And I haven't seen anything, you know, where I said, wow, I really need to invest in, in this project yet. Uh, I've been looking at a lot of projects, but usually it's more like, how can we use AI to, you know, increase visibility or understanding of data or increase uh, processes, etc. So it's not like, oh, I'm building a blockchain based on AI or something like that. It's not revolutionary what, what I see in the market, but Melton might have another opinion. I think when it comes to AI, there are a lot of 2017, 2018 era projects that have seen a bit of a resurgence. Um, and then there's a couple of projects from the last cycle, Aletheia being one example. I'm an investor in that, full disclosure, that is attempting um, to create INFTs or intelligent NFTs, where your NFT can be trained with different data. Um, I actually voice trained my Ether rocks, so it can speak in my voice. I can type in little commands in my little ether rock uh, speaks at me. I haven't done it with my crypto dick butt yet, but I got to work on that. So there's a few projects that are working on INFTs, intelligent NFTs that have an ML component, really. I think a lot of this AI stuff is really ML, right? You just like take a bunch of data, you dump it all together, and then you you do like fast for transforms and get a bunch of data out. It's linear algebra, like massive scale. Um, what I think is interesting, some of the areas I've been interested in is how crypto can be an enabler for AI. So payments, 
right? Doing that in stable coins or some type of digital token that settles with immediate uh, like settlement guarantees, I think is really interesting. Um, I think data authentication is really interesting. I think ZK proofs potentially as applied to AI and the underlying data sets could be really interesting. So I think there's some adjacent applications that could be interesting. I don't think any of these things require a token. I think they're just enabling tools as Vanessa alluded to. Um, and then on the gaming side and art side, we're seeing some really cool things with generative art where people are applying like GAN algorithms and other learning algorithms. Uh, Rafik Anadol, right, is a famous um, artist who's really embraced NFTs, who's, who's been doing this for years. Um, but there's a lot of new art being generated. People are looking at ways to leverage AI to allow people to generate in-game assets and then issue them on chain. So again, the AI and crypto component are kind of mashed together, but one doesn't necessitate the use of, of the other. But, you know, it's really thinking about, okay, if I create something utilizing AI, how do I sort of prove ownership of the underlying data? Can I attach, you know, uh, guarantees to it? How do I embed it with permanence as a hash on one of these blockchains that, that has permanence? Um, how do I store it on chain or store a hash referring to that image or that asset on chain? So there's all of these like little components that are helping this world of digital content and, and digitally generated stuff connects with the world of, of crypto. Um, but I think AI, you know, to me, it's like one or two cycles out from really generating meaningful commercial results. So interested looking, but as Vanessa alluded to from a risk reward perspective, I think super early stage valuations way overhyped. So I'm approaching with, with caution. <laughs> The core promise of crypto hasn't changed. Stable coins can bring faster payments at internet scale, from merchants at the point of sale to corporations that want to pay suppliers or even employees more efficiently. Circle has always seen itself as a connector of the traditional world and the new world of digital currency. USDC is more than just a stable coin. USDC is also an open source platform. When our transactions actually final and you can't change them anymore, that's another great quality property of cash because when you switch his hand, it's fine. Right? Can you digitize all those good quality properties and bring that in a digital form? USDC by Circle is at the forefront of this innovation. And that's why The Scoop is partnering with the folks at Circle to tell you guys why and how our industry is moving. A lot of us who have built USDC, myself included and Jeremy included, we are technologists. So we approach this problem from a technology point of view. Visit circle.com scoop for more information. Have you ever wanted to use DeFi without being seen? Railgun is a leading DeFi privacy solution on Ethereum. And it's also a leading privacy solution operating across Binance Smart Chain, Arbitrum, and Polygon too. Shield your funds and use them privately on your favorite DeFi apps. Railgun's cutting edge zero knowledge system encrypts your data from public view. And yes, that includes DEX trading. DeFi and privacy together at last. Visit railgun.org to find out more. 
This episode is also brought to you by Flare, an EVM-based layer one blockchain with secure access to information from other chains and the internet. Flare's state connector acquires detailed transaction data from blockchains and information from Web2 APIs in a decentralized way, so it can be used securely, scalably, and trustlessly in applications running on the network. Paired with the Flare Time Series Oracle for decentralized price and time series data, Flare delivers a developer focused blockchain with secure native access to more off-chain data than ever before. Build better and connect everything at flare.network. Vanessa, what's the state of NFT venture activity? So it's really interesting. Um, I think uh, you see that the NFT market is pretty active. Um, we see, you know, everyday new exchanges, uh, whether it's generalized marketplaces or, you know, subject uh, specific marketplaces. Uh, we see a lot of activity um, in the, uh, you know, Rihanna just released an NFT. Reddit is releasing an NFT. And so I think the attraction of the NFT as uh, a form of social media, as a form mm. of engagement with uh, your customers, your clients, your fans is really here to stay. And more and more companies are uh, are adopting this on the on the venture side. Uh, we we still see a lot of uh, projects like that, uh, and at the intersection, which I find pretty interesting, of the metaverse, of AR, of VR, of three D, and so I think that's um, that's kind of exciting because we're really building the, the building blocks for the the future metaverse and and the economy there. Um, so we have a, a lot of projects in, in that space and pretty excited about it. Um, again, you know, the marketplaces, uh, with the, all the fees going to zero, like the question is, how are they really going to make money? What is really distinctive, um, between them? And is that the right model for the future? Is that how people are going to interact with NFTs? So I think it's a, still a very dynamic area, which is pretty exciting. Um, but uh, you need to make sure that the teams you invest in are, are going to be able to um, monetize or create a, a token model that um, aligns with, with the goal of the project. So how do they monetize? So um, on marketplace, it's pretty straightforward with fees, et cetera. There's a lot of hesitation on a lot of these projects to monetize through advertising and, you know, traditional web to monetization schemes. So it's um, everyone is, is really trying to understand like how they can monetize on the primary sale, on the secondary sale, on the engagement, et cetera. So we'll see. Mm. Yeah, it was interesting. We had um, we had the CEO of QuickNote on the podcast, and they just closed around at an eight hundred million dollar valuation. He kind of ascribed the the increasing like infrastructure NFT need among you know some of these large brands as driving sort of the revenue growth and then the raise that followed. So like as Starbucks and all of these different players become more interested, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that. Yeah. And with the, um, I would say the um, litigation with uh, 
Hermes and uh, and the Meta uh, Birkin collection. Uh, we're going to see, uh, if you don't know about this, basically there was an artist that issued about 100 um, NFTs representing uh, a Birkin uh, bag with fur. They were very cute. When first I saw them, I'm like, wow, Hermes is very bold. They're going <laughs> to do something. But actually it was that artist that was uh, doing that and he got sued or she got sued by uh by the company um, stating that they were infringing their uh, intellectual property rights and the company won. So it sort of like gives comfort for a lot of brands who are going to be engaging in the metaverse, who are mm-hmm. going to be engaging in NFTs that their intellectual property uh, rights will hold, whether you're you know, in person, on the internet, in the metaverse or with NFTs, these, these rules and regulations remain the same and so i think that's that's going to be also a factor for even more companies to sort of engage in that um in that activity yeah it just creates like just makes it more robust knowing that there's sort of rules of the road are established yeah and for those um who don't know basically the artist was arguing that this was freedom of expression and that you know for example Warhol, who used, you know, Campbell's uh, soup uh, picture, you know, it's the same situation, but actually it's not. What the court was saying is, you know, by putting out these Birkin-like objects, the artist was intending to confuse the consumer Mm. or the client that these could be uh, from the original company. Whereas when you see the picture from Warhol, you know that this is not Campbell soup. Uh, it's not a Campbell soup creation. So I think that's really the distinction. It doesn't mean that you can't use, you know, trademarks or things like that in a work of art. It means that you can't confuse the public and extract sort of the attention of the public based on the fact that uh, they might think that this is the brand when it's not. It's an interesting point. I guess one last thing I want to talk about is this drama around Uniswap, which was interesting to me because you see the the big bubbles. There's the big Robert Leshner bubble, but then the rest are basically all funds. Um, and then, you know, A16Z got some flack for voting um, in favor of, of their portfolio company, Layer One, for that Uniswap BNB bridging um, vote. But it raises a question that I think is interesting, which is, you know, how decentralized are these protocols? It still seems like it's not the the little guys who are causing the drama. It's the big VCs who have all the power still. But but let's be really clear when we use the word decentralized, right? That can mean many different things in a protocol or a network. Um, what we're talking about here specifically is governance and making changes to the protocol. And I think one of the challenges is when asset ownership is tied to governance decisions, right? You get fundamental challenges. Um, like the study of human governance and the implementation of different governments, governance systems is something humanity has been experimenting with for the last three or four millennia. 
uh, famously, you know, Polybius wrote this this great sort of treatise um, and created this sort of framework, the Kyklos cycle or anacyclosis for how patterns of human organization and governance sort of evolve. Um, and a lot of these networks that are, you know, proof of stake or dictated by token governance are plutocratic in nature, meaning the more you own, the more say you, you have. So I think, um, you know, this is nothing new. I don't think it's surprising. Human nature is incredibly consistent. <laughs> and I don't think it's... Uh, I don't understand the criticism because people knew exactly what they were getting into. Like all of this is very clearly laid out, disclaimed, you know, exactly how governance works. I think what is interesting is people have looked at different ways to circumvent this. So A16Z did give some of its stake, did delegate some of its stake to different mm. student organizations and research organizations that are independent to, you know, add some sort of autonomy. Um, I know Hayden, right? Hayden, who's the creator of Uniswap, he obviously has a lot of uni tokens and therefore a large stake in governance. He delegates his uni tokens to a lot of different community members to increase their ability to, to participate in, in governance, even if they don't directly hold a lot of tokens. So I think this idea of delegation is, is supposed to help. But at the end of the day, this um, idea that emerged like two or three years ago around this role of protocol politician right, or people who specialize mm. in governance, you have Gauntlet um, and other firms who are sort of specializing in this role of protocol politician or, or protocol governance. Um, I think that's going to continue to grow. And again, it's all about incentives. So, you know, I'm not surprised by it. I don't understand why people are so upset by it, because you know exactly what you signed up for. Um, mm -hmm. And it's, it's going to continue. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just endless cycles repeating themselves. And there are no perfect uh, solutions. So I don't know, to me, it was a little surprising because you can just look at like the uni dashboards and see who owns how much and where stake is delegated and who's making decisions. So I don't know, I continue to find it surprising that people on the internet get mad about things that are like very clearly self-evident. Maybe that's like the inner skeptic <laughs> in me. Are you a skeptical, Vanessa? No, I agree with Meltem. I mean, I think it was uh, this matter was totally overblown. Um, and I think, you know, people are very sensitive to the fact that, you know, VCs are investing a lot in the space. And um, it's not just individual contributors, et cetera. But I think that's that's kind of okay. And that, that's how, um, you know, A16Z actually quite uh, managed pretty well the situation with delegating their um, their stakes. So I, I just think every time there's a VC intervening in governance, there's a lot of emotion and, uh, and discussions that are triggered just by the mere fact that they're a VC. Uh, remember, um, you know, discussions around Arca and Sushi and things like that. It's just, there's no real role for um, sort of a, a very proactive and visible um, uh, challenging uh, role for, for VCs in, in this governance. So um, usually discussions are um, pretty tense and I think it's it's just the nature of these decentralized uh, governance uh, organizations. I, how do you, how do you, is there any way to solve for that, Vanessa? Like, 
I mean, there there could be um, some some standards that you know um, people come together and say, okay, it would be great if there's X amount of tokens uh, as a maximum that can be held by one entity. That could be one thing. There could be, but it's very hard. You know, you can do that in the in the corporate world, where you know it's easy to identify uh, each shareholder, etc. You can't do that with the wallets, um, but you you could think of a, a discussion between some projects where uh, we say, okay, these are the best practices uh, in order to have a decentralized um, governance, and you know. You can look at to what Maker is doing or to what, what other big projects are doing and and think about these standards. But I don't think there's anything else that could be imposed on the on the projects. VCs could just call themselves something different. Maybe like not VC. <laughs> People in the industry just hate them. <laughs> Always will. It's good though. We need someone to, you know, put a bit of a flame under their Took us as it were. Well, guys, um, I guess to close out, uh, what are we most excited about for the next month? So I'm totally intrigued by the Bitcoin NFTs. I think this is really uh, an interesting uh, development. And although it stirred some uh, debates uh, within the, the Bitcoin community, I think it's really an opportunity actually uh, for new new developments on, on the Bitcoin chain. And I'd love to hear um, Meltem's view on this. Yeah, Ordinals has been really interesting to watch. Um, you know, there's a lot of block space and things that create demand and use for block space. Um, you know, most networks would be deemed inherently valuable, especially in a proof of work network uh, that is migrating away from network inflation towards towards fees, although, you know, it's a 140-year timeline. Um, I think one important distinction that people still don't understand is the fundamental distinction between an NFT, like an ERC-721 token, um, and an, an inscription on, on Bitcoin. Um, you know, one of the things I always used to joke is like U, UTXOs, which are um, unspent transaction outputs in Bitcoin, are like the original NFT. But there is like this fundamental technical distinction that I think is really important. And then there's a lot of uh, like issues around where the actual image data itself is stored, what the like hash is actually pointing to. There's a lot of nuance around how you interact with an inscription that's very different from how you interact with an Ethereum-based non-fungible token. And what, what's, the, what's the drama around it? Is it just that people are worried it's taking- People are pissed. Yeah, the, yeah, people are basically pissed that you're spamming the network, but it's like, okay, a block has a limited capacity and we're not exceeding that capacity. And look, I think Bitcoin people just love to be mad. <laughs> Honestly, it's the conclusion I've come to. I am a Bitcoin first person, uh, but I'm not a Bitcoin only person. And like Bitcoiners, just some parts of the Bitcoin community are very um, dogmatic and they, they're just mad. They don't like it when people have fun. Um, a little bit, you know, overzealous, I think, but everyone's entitled to their dogma. We certainly see that on Ethereum now evolving as well, right? Or even like the Uniswap governance thing we're talking about. People get very dogmatic about these things. 
Um, I'm not as excited about ordinals, um, which is like the this Bitcoin NFT movement created by uh, Casey Rodemore. Um, I think inscriptions, again, there's a lot of nuance around what you actually own and what the actual thing is that you're representing, like that have some fundamental challenges. And I haven't seen any unique art. You know, I bought AVAX punks. There's Binance B&B punks. There's now Bitcoin punks, like whatever. Did you get a Bitcoin punk? I did not, but I think it sets the stage for further developments. You could think that there there may be like an exchange uh, because right now people are trading like peer to peer or ETC. Um, I think you know it might develop some infrastructure and give the impulsion that you can do more with the Bitcoin uh, blockchain, which you know has been held back a little bit. I would say due to this very strong opinion of what the Bitcoin chain needs to be as a payment uh, solution. And so I think uh, it's an opportunity. Uh, we'll yeah, see where it, where it goes. I mean, you also have Noster, right, which is social messaging on Bitcoin that's really taken off. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm more excited about right now, I think the name of the game, and I'm seeing a lot of companies pivoting, the name of the game is Interchange. At the end of the day, like this really is... Um, capital markets technology and capital markets infrastructure and bringing markets to new types of assets. And I think what companies are realizing is companies that were in the business of providing like these tools and services that worked well in a bull market, but now have no volume, no activity are realizing that the only way to consistently make money in the crypto space is to be as close to this interchange as possible. So I'm seeing a lot of businesses pivoting to like move more close to the actual flow of funds and where the interchange is happening. And so, you know, it's kind of the same trend we saw where in the last cycle, everybody in the bear market was like, we're building infrastructure, we're building infrastructure in this context is market infrastructure. Same thing here, um, you know, if there's order flow and you're charging 30 basis points, if you can capture a couple basis points of that flow, that's a really great way to build a recurring sort of revenue pipeline. Um, you're still subject to some of the volatility of the market, but I think a lot of companies that started out in different spaces, in different sort of products and services are recognizing the closer you migrate to where the actual interchange happens, the more likely you are to earn consistent revenues, which then results in you being to, able to, to raise capital. Um, I think on the flip side, there's just way too many DeFi projects, way too many exchanges, while like so many financial infrastructure tools, um, a lot of them have been funded. You know, I don't, I don't know who's funding these things, but at insane valuations. So I think there's a lot of overhang there, a lot of stuff that just like doesn't get used by anyone, is not actually doing anything useful. And then a lot of stuff's just copy pasta, like, I hey, know. we built this on Ethereum, now it's on Solana, now it's yeah. on Cosmos, now it's on Canto, now it's on yeah. like Arbitrum. It's just over and over and over and over again. But I do think moving closer to interchange and figuring out what are actual defensible business models there, very exciting. So that's what I'm focused on. I think, Vanessa, it has to be, you can, like, what was it? Was it DeFi Summer where, you know, to Melton's point, you had, I'm the, we're the decentralized options marketplace on Solana. We're doing, and then someone else is doing it on a different chain and, and so on and so forth. Probably just makes sense to just be multi-chain at that point, which is kind of what, you know, Magic Eden, I think, is a good example of this, where they, you know, kind of got a positioning in one market in Solana and then expanded to ETH. And then OpenSea did the flip going from Ethereum to mm -hmm. Solana. I feel like 
that's got to be the move for all of these different companies, especially the ones in DeFi that Melton's referring to. You can't just be the Solana option. Yeah, protocol. I think I think you do need to establish market dominance uh, in order to be successful in in that. Um, if you have a market dominance in one blockchain, then um, porting over to another one and trying to achieve the same thing is is easier, um, or at least a brand and recognition about you know the experience or what you offer. Um, because what we see is you know uh, projects equivalent to what's on Ethereum starting on Solana or in other things with just a fork or things like that, and that's not. It's not very interesting. It's not sustainable. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thanks for listening. And, and Vanessa and Meltem, thanks for joining us today. We are very excited to have you on again. Thanks for being on the show. Bye, guys. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.